Heavenly Father, we thank you that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, that there is coming a day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, that in your name is the representation of all that you are, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our Redeemer. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to see you for who you are, and to glorify you for all that you are and have done. And I pray that even as we gather this morning, our hearts would be bowed before you, that we would, we would surrender, we would yield. Our lives would be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, and that we would see that as our only, the only thing that would make sense for us would be to, to lay ourselves down before you. Lord, I thank you for the body of Christ, and that even on a, a morning like this morning, that we have privilege of gathering together, of being encouraged in the faith, of worshiping together and praising together and singing together and looking into your word together and studying and coming to know you. We thank you that your spirit is here in the midst of your people. And once again, we yield to your Holy Spirit and ask that you would accomplish your will. I pray that you would give us a compassion for the lost. Pray as well that you'd give us a love for those who are in Christ, that we would be spreading this love abroad and speaking the truth in love, whether that is to saved or unsaved, we would be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that we have opportunity to look into your word this morning. I pray that you would guide us and direct us, that we would be yielded once again in this area, that we would be pliable in your hands. We ask that you would anoint us by your Holy Spirit, that you would grant us wisdom and understanding and discernment. Give us a will to apply, practically speaking, the truth of your word. May our lives be transformed as we look into your word this morning. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can take your Bibles and turn to Second Timothy. We're going to be a while coming there, but that is where we will land eventually. The essentials of the faith, areas upon which we are united. Today we are on part four of that series, Essentials of the Faith, part four. We're looking at the Word of God. This is the first essential of the faith as listed within our doctrinal statement. We have, as introduction, addressed the adage, unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and love in all things. Today, we're actually going to begin examining those essentials, the articles of the faith that are essential. These truths that we will look at, one per message prayerfully, this time it's actually going to be two messages on the Word of God because I just could not make it all the way through in my notes for one. But these essentials that we are going to be looking at are the pivotal, non-negotiable essentials. They are truths which we adhere to and which we joyfully proclaim. These are issues upon which we cannot and must not waver. As our statement of faith declares, we uncompromisingly defend the essentials. These are truly matters of heaven and hell. These are matters that we are and must remain united on. These are not simply truths that we have picked out and think are the best of the best. These are the truths of the Word of God and that the Word of God declares to be essential in regards to salvation and living the life of faith that we are called to live. 
And I would encourage you, if you think I'm missing one as we come to the end of the list, or you think that I've put one in there that shouldn't be there, then address it to me, preferably not while I'm preaching in the pulpit. But I'm more than willing to take time and to discuss these. Or if there's any that you have uncertainty about or concerns about, do not allow these essential issues of the faith to go unaddressed if you have concerns. Please remember as well that as we work through these essentials, they really should not be separated one from another. These are doctrines which, if denied in one point, are essentially denied in all points. Or at least, if denied in one point is a denial of the truth in which you are saved and in which you stand, as we see from Ephesians. These messages are not for those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is for the church. It is truths upon which we stand. Now, prayerfully, there will still be the preaching of the gospel for those who are outside of Jesus Christ as we work our way through this. But primarily, this is for the believer. This is for the one who has turned from their sin and has trusted in Jesus Christ. This is for the one who has heard of the glorious grace of God as has surrendered their life to him and entrusted their life to him. So, child of God, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the first essential of the faith is this, and I will read it twice. The Holy Scriptures, as originally given by God, divinely inspired, infallible, entirely trustworthy, and the only supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. The Holy Scriptures, as originally given by God, divinely inspired, infallible, entirely trustworthy, and the only supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Now, what I'm going to do is examine that statement, determine exactly what it means, and provide, I pray, biblical proof of it. This will not be exhaustive. We are simply saying this we hold to be true, and all genuine believers should hold it to be true as well. This is a truth that unites us. Entire commentaries, large sermon series have been written on this one topic. Well, actually, on a subdivision of this, on the authority of the Word of God, there's been entire commentaries written on inspiration, on infallibility, on any one of these. We're just going to have a quick overview of it. But remember, this is an essential doctrine to which we hold. I am going to divide that essential statement up and examine it under three points. The Bible is the revelation of God. The Bible is truth. And thirdly, the Bible is authoritative. We'll just look at those first two points this morning. The Bible is the revelation of God. That statement covers the first portion of the essential, the Holy Scriptures, as originally given by God. There are many famous books, even several famous holy books, but there is only one book that is the revelation of God to man. That means God has spoken And we have record of it, and I believe, I'm certain, I'm confident that through God's hand of keeping it, that we have it in our hands today. God has spoken. It is the revelation of God to man. Now, when I say that there is only one book that is the revelation of God to man, that he has spoken and that we have record of it, that can sound very arrogant, It could even sound incredibly presumptuous, but it really isn't. When we consider what we know of God, by what God has revealed of himself outside of the word of God, we understand that the God who exists 
is incredible. He is majestic. He is big beyond our ability to comprehend it. We see that in creation. Everything that is was created. It is an impossibility for nothing to create something or for everything that is to spring from nothing. That is logically impossible unless there is a greater power that pre-exists. There must be a creator who is outside of our reality of space and time to create all that there is inside of space and time. Therefore, this creator must be infinite. The more we see and understand the creation around us, the more we see and understand the power and majesty and eternality of God. That is in itself an entire field of study. Regardless, there is a God who has created all that is. This God, by very definition of being God, must have purpose and intent. And since he created mankind with the ability to reason about purpose and intent and meaning, he must, because of his very essence, because of his very character, communicate. Simply put, there is a God. He created reasoning beings. It would be nonsensical for this creator God to not communicate purpose and meaning to these reasoning beings. So the God that exists must communicate. And the second part of that is that the communication of God must align with the character of God. The word of God is the only holy text that aligns with the character of the God who is and who has revealed himself in creation. All of that that I've just given you is a philosophical argument. And there are several very solid philosophical arguments why the Bible is God's revelation to man. However, there's also great evidence beyond the philosophical which may resonate better with us, why this that you hold in your hands today is the Word of God. The Bible proves itself to be the revelation of God through its consistency. This book, containing 66 books within it, written over a span of about 1,600 years by some 40 different authors from different backgrounds, education levels, and cultures, is internally consistent. This is one story, and it is the story of Jesus Christ. Beginning to end, it has the same theme. And beginning to end, it verifies itself and does not conflict. Where there are perceived conflicts, it is merely that. Perceived conflicts. That is miraculous. The Bible proves itself to be the revelation of God through its consistency. The Bible proves itself to be the revelation of God to man through its accuracy. This book contains a wealth of information. Over the years, that information, especially as far as historical, has been repeatedly challenged. And time and time again in those challenges, it has been proven to be true. New evidence regularly arises that prove its accuracy. There are thousands and thousands of archaeological finds that verify the accuracy of the Word of God. There are also outside sources that prove the accuracy of ancient scriptures, such as Egyptian hieroglyphics, which have only been able to be translated within the last century. Even practices that are found within the word of God, that God gave particularly to Israel in the ceremonial law. They ran counterculture for hundreds of years, and those practices have now been seen as the most proven effective health practices. In other words, it actually works. And it's taken hundreds, sometimes thousands of years for that to be proven true. This book is accurate. It is accurate in all that it says. That does not mean that it has every truth in every area. But in every area it speaks, it speaks truth. It speaks to reality thousands of times over, 
Even where certain fields of study have brought it into question, it continually speaks truth to reality. It lines up with what is real. It is truth. It is accurate. And that is true of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. When we think of archaeological discoveries, normally we think Old Testament, but it is still accurate within the New Testament. And we see that, interestingly enough, in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 Mediterranean islands. He also mentions 95 persons, 62 of which are not named elsewhere in the New Testament. And his references, where checkable, are always proved correct. It is truly remarkable in view of the fact that the political and territorial situation of his day was almost in a constant state of change. We have miraculous accuracy within the word of God. The Bible proves itself to be the revelation of God to man through its accuracy. The Bible also proves itself to be the revelation of God to man through its prophecy. And this is an incredible one. When I say prophecy here, I mean in a predictive sense, not merely a word of knowledge or discernment, but actually foretelling what would happen. This is a miracle of knowledge, a declaration or representation of something future that is beyond the power of human ability to discern or to calculate. Now, for a prophecy to be true, it must contain specifics, not generalities. It must include timing, and it must be the exact, or it must be exact in its fulfillment. And when we look at the prophecies from the Old Testament that have been fulfilled throughout history, we see there is no question that this book is supernatural, that it is the revelation of God to man. The Old Testament prophesied that nations would rise and fall, and they did. It prophesied that there would be battles, and there were. It prophesied who would win some battles and who would lose some battles and why they would lose some battles. It prophesies the destruction of certain areas. The number of prophecies in the Old Testament and the detail in which they have been fulfilled in time since is absolutely incredible. And I would encourage you, take some time and look into Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled. Go beyond that. Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ. There are more prophecies spoken of him than any other topic of prophecy. The Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, contained over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled through his life, death, and resurrection. Over 300. In his book, Science Speaks, mathematician Peter W. Stoner selected just eight of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. And out of those eight, he took the eight that he selected and he estimated the odds of those eight being accidentally fulfilled in one individual. The odds of that happening is one in 10 to the 17th power. That is one followed by 17 zeros. He illustrated it. He says, suppose we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and we lay them on the face of Texas. That number of silver dollars will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? That's the odds of eight prophecies being fulfilled exactly in Jesus Christ. It must be miraculous. That's only for eight. 
Eight prophecies being fulfilled by happenstance in one person. Now imagine 300 prophecies all perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is divine. The prophetic evidence for the divine origin of the Bible is absolutely incredible. So there are a couple of proofs for you beyond just the philosophical one that this, the Bible, is the revelation of God. This is, as it says in our essential statements of faith, holy scripture as originally given by God. Now, before I go on to the next point, you may very well ask, and it has been asked, what about this idea of canonization of the Word of God? What about errors in translation? What about variety of translations? That could be a 10-part series all in itself. In the, the statement of this essential of the faith, it says, the Holy Scriptures as originally given by God. It is the original writings that were completely and wholly of God. And yet God has been faithful in preserving his word. And if we want examples of that faithful in preserving his word, we can look back through history. But in relation to canonization, how do we know that we actually have the books that are inspired? The word canon means rule or standard. This is the measurement of whether a book was inspired by God. There's a bit of difference between the Old Testament canon and the New Testament canon as to when it was put together. Obviously, the Old Testament canon of Scripture has been preserved and is certain. It's, I don't know if there's any field that actually doubts that it's accepted as the canon of God's Scripture. But what about the New Testament? We don't have any of the original papers that the actual apostles wrote on in our hands today. So is this actually the canon of Scripture, the inspired Word of God? Or are there other books that should be in it? Even though we don't have the original writings, there are over 5,000 different portions, pieces, or books of the New Testament that were copied by hand prior to the development of the printing press in 1516. Over 5,000. The earliest of those pieces dates back to AD 130. Of those 5,000 different pieces of literature, listen to what two different experts in New Testament literature say. The first one says, The proportion of words virtually accepted on all hands as raised above doubt is great, not less than on a rough computation than seven-eighths of the whole. The remaining one-eighth that could possibly be in question, formed in great part by changes of order or other comparative trivialities, constitutes the whole area of textual criticism. The words, in our opinion still subject to doubt, only make up about one-sixtieth of the whole New Testament. Substantial variation is but a small fraction of that whole residuary variation and can hardly form more than one one-hundredth part of the entire text. So when it comes down to actual doubt about what was written in the original writings in the New Testament, actual doubt is less than one one-hundredth of what we have today. The very fact that we have so many copies of the New Testament that were copied by hand before the printing press that provides for errors, as they were all copied by hand, but the number of copies also increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors, so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is not so large as might be feared. It is, in truth, remarkably small. Remarkably small. F. F. Bruce says, The variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affects no material question of historic fact or of Christian faith and practice. We have the word of God, the revelation of God to man. It is his holy 
scriptures. It is given by God, and it has been preserved by God. The Bible is the revelation of God. second thing I want us to see today is the Bible is truth. I've realized that that entire first point had no scripture to it. In a sense, we're looking extra-biblical. We're looking at philosophical reasoning or at internal evidence without me picking apart because for me to actually do that, as I said, would be at least a 10-part series just in that one point. I do want to look at Scripture in the second point, though, as we see that the Bible is truth. We saw that a little bit from the first point, but I want to examine three terms that are used in the statement of faith. It says, The Holy Scriptures, as originally given by God, divinely inspired, infallible, and entirely trustworthy. What is divine inspiration, infallibility, and trustworthy? What do they mean? 2 Timothy chapter 3, the most commonly used passage in defending inspiration of the Word of God. We're going to read from verse 10 to the end of verse 17. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. But you have carefully followed my doctrine. So Paul says, Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We see here in this passage, particularly in verse 10, that Paul encourages Timothy that not like those mentioned prior to this who resisted the truth and had corrupt minds, Timothy had followed Paul's doctrine, his manner of life, his purpose, his faith, etc. Then we see in verse 14, Paul challenges Timothy to continue in the things he had learned. This continuance is in the Holy Scriptures, which his mother had taught him from childhood. We see that at the beginning of of Timothy. That would be the Old Testament. But it is also the doctrine of Paul. Because the Old Testament has very little to say, in a sense, about this age of grace and the body, the church. This was the mystery that Paul had preached. Timothy is to continue in these teachings as well as in the instruction of the Old Testament. Why? because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, Paul could be speaking just of the Old Testament Scriptures, and there are some that even think that is the case. It doesn't read that way to me. Otherwise, why would Paul have spoken of his doctrine that was worthy of being followed? And why would Paul have spoken of the Holy Scriptures in verse 15, but then said all Scripture in verse 16? I believe that Paul included his writings as inspired of God, He spoke and wrote what God revealed to him. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, it says says this. Paul speaking again, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he, that is God, made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, 
as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul wrote the revelation that was made known to him. Paul was granted a special dispensation of grace or stewardship of grace by the Holy Spirit. So it is evident to me that Paul understood that he was inspired by God, that it was not his own thoughts. We see as well that the other apostles believed this. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. There's a lot in here, but I'll just read it quickly. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot and blemish, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. There's a lot in there, but that last sentence Peter says some people were twisting the words of Paul as they do also the rest of scriptures. The rest of scriptures puts Paul's writing alongside the Old Testament and other New Testament writers. This is inspired scripture. So if we take that and we understand that Paul's writings were inspired scripture, he recognized them as that, Peter recognized them as that, the other apostles recognized them as that, and we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 to 17, where it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Paul believed and understood that what he was writing was the very breathings of God. That's what inspiration of God literally means. It is God-breathed. The word of God, the revelation of God, is literally that. The revelation of God, it is from him. Now, there's a lot of discussion about how that worked, and there's differing opinions about how that worked. Regardless, this is the word of God. Was it that the Holy Spirit gave the right of the thoughts and they put it in their own words? Or did the Holy Spirit commit both thought and words, that is the exact words, to the writers? The reason this question is raised is because we understand that each writer has his own style. Each writer uses words that may be unique to them. But I believe that our God is big enough to literally give them the words to write and still have it in their own style. I mean, we are talking about the divine revelation being communicated from God. Regardless of your perspective on how inspiration works, it is what took place. That we receive the word of God because of the inspiration of God. They are, it is the breathing of God. Peter expresses it this way in Second Peter chapter 1. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard his voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
Peter says, I was there. I heard God speak. I witnessed the, the word of God that had become flesh in Jesus Christ. I was eyewitness of the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets prophesied. Peter says they were right. They didn't speak of their own will, but as the revelation from God, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. There it is, inspiration. God breathed. This is the book of God's revelation. It is truth. It is divinely inspired. And because it is divine in its origin and not just divine in some small g God, but because it is the very thoughts and words of the sovereign God of all, we can have absolute confidence in its infallibility, the second word. Infallible means that it is without error. Now, there's some discussion around inerrancy versus infallibility. Technically, infallible is slightly stronger than inerrant. Inerrant means without error, and infallible means incapable of error. However you look at it, the Word of God, because it is literally the breathings of God by His Holy Spirit through human authors, is in the original writings without error and incapable of error. If there is a God, and there is, and if this God communicates, and He has, then what He communicates will be perfect as He is perfect, and He will sovereignly intend over it so that it is perfect. The original writings of the Old Testament and New Testament are the infallible Word of God. You've got enough to think about for one week? I was just going to leave and look at authoritative next week, but we will continue with the words infallible and the words and entirely trustworthy, and that it is the authority, the final authority, the supreme authority. But I would encourage you, you can trust the Word of God. We'll look at that when it says trustworthy. That's actually what it means. That you have, I believe, I'm confident of, the Word of God, the revelation of God. Sure, one and one hundredth part might be questionable in its translation or in its communication to us or whether they put the comma where the comma should be because there was no commas in Greek. We have the Word of God. We have the revelation. God is not silent. God did not remain silent. God created us as reasoning, thinking Beings with meaning and purpose. And in that creation, it would not make sense for him not to communicate meaning and purpose. He has given it to us within his word. And it isn't just that this is a truth that unites us. But if you are, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you've surrendered your life to him. Yeah, you're united, but you're also dependent upon this, this book. You could not be saved without the revelation of God to man. And you will not mature or be strong or be strengthened or be built up without the revelation of God to man. You may have all your other ducks in a row, but you have nothing in that sense except that God has communicated. We take far too lightly even in the words, we take far too lightly that God spoke and he didn't speak nonsense. In the revelation of God, we know the character of God. In the revelation of God, we know the character of man. In the revelation of God, we know the holiness of God. 
In the revelation of, ma- of God, we know the sinfulness of man. In the revelation of God, we know the wrath of God. In the revelation of God, we know the grace of God. In the revelation of God, we have the curse that is on every single one. In the revelation of God, we have the one who lifted the curse in Jesus Christ. We have nothing without the revelation of God. And I want to encourage you, get to know God through his revelation. Be transformed through his revelation, trusting the Holy Spirit to guide you and direct you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus Christ, that the word became flesh, that Christ, you are the fullness of the Godhead in bodily formed. You are the, the fullness of revelation. And when we can't understand maybe some of the Old Testament prophecies or even the New Testament prophecies or details that are, that are difficult for us to grasp, cause us to look to Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would so transform us, that you would take us and trans, or conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That that word that is Christ and that we have before us, that is alive and active, would be alive and active in us and then would go from us and penetrate into the world around us, that we would take and we would speak the word and live the word. May our lives be the revelation of God to a world that refuses to open the book of the revelation of God. Give us boldness and confidence in this, not because of ourselves, but because of you, who you are, what you are doing, and because of the clear and entirely trustworthy truths contained within your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.